1941. It was a December Sunday like any other. Folks on the West Coast were at church or at the movies or visiting friends. Some were serving customers at the grocery store. Sammy Kay's Sunday Serenade was on the radio. I was playing in the yard. I was playing Captain Marvel with a cape and so. And my brother, Tsuyoshi, came after me and said, we're going home. We're going home right now. I remember that very, very clearly. I turned the radio on and, oh my God. President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt On uh, December 7th, we were out in the field working. And my sister came out and she said, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. I immediately thought, well, it had to happen. It just shattered me. You know, I just didn't know what to think. I didn't hear about it until I got home. And my father was listening to the radio. And he just said, well, they bombed Pearl Harbor. He says, I don't know where it is. And all I could think of was, well, how would my friends treat me at school? I asked Dad, what's going to happen to us? And you know what he said? Uh, the government will take care of us. I'm going to cry. The government will take care of us. From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066 podcast series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Saab Shimono. When I was a child, my family lived in Sacramento. We were imprisoned at two camps. The first was in northeastern California. Then we were sent to Colorado. Seventy-five years ago, some 120,000 Japanese Americans were living in prison camps built by the government of the United States. Like me, two-thirds were American citizens. As America went to war, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. It authorized the forced removal of people of Japanese ancestry living in California, Oregon, Washington, and Arizona. Why? In part because U.S. security officials feared that Japan would invade America's Pacific coast. That's where most Americans of Japanese ancestry lived. In the months leading up to the war, military officials, major newspapers, and West Coast politicians warned that these people of Japanese ancestry would rise up to fight for Japan. Right here, in our own city, are those who may spring to action at an appointed time in accordance with a prearranged plan. This is what Los Angeles Mayor Fletcher Boron said on the radio after Pearl Harbor. His words are read by an actor. Each of our little Japanese friends will know his part in the event of any attempted invasion or air raid. We cannot run the risk of another Pearl Harbor episode in California. Authorities warned that Japanese-American saboteurs would blow up dams and bridges. They would signal enemy ships and planes. They would poison the food supply. Of course, none of this ever happened. 
This podcast series will explore what led up to Order 9066. We'll learn about the FBI's roundup of suspected saboteurs and what it was like for people to live in the prison camps. We'll hear how the incarceration changed the lives of people who lived through it. We'll find out why people now call it incarceration and not internment. anti-Japanese prejudice that roiled the West Coast in the 1940s had been building for decades. Chinese immigrants started arriving in the 1840s. They were attracted to the gold rush. Historian Alice Yang has written extensively on Asian American history. They work building the railroads, and then you get the development of an anti-Chinese campaign, including a lot of labor activists who argued that the Chinese laborers were taking jobs from white workers. Chinese immigrants are banned in 1882, and as a result, the labor recruiters search for a replacement. So they turn to the Japanese immigrants. Which worked for a time. Historian Greg Robinson is an authority on Order 9066. He says pretty soon the anti-Chinese bigotry expanded to include the Japanese. White farmers and commercial groups resented Japanese competition. The Japanese were excellent farmers. They worked hard. The the whole families worked, so they were able to make very unproductive land, very productive, and they succeeded. And this challenged white supremacy, and it challenged the uh, automatic assumption of white Californians that they should uh, be on top. Many Japanese immigrants were non-Christians. Whites denounced them for supposedly being degenerate and immoral, flatly unable to adopt virtuous American ways. Newspapers along the coast brimmed with anti-Japanese venom. The Japanese are worse than the Chinese. For while the Chinese takes up work a white man will not do, the Japanese enters into active competition and drives the white man out. Our duty is to preserve America for the Americans and the white races whom we can assimilate and whose children will have the American way of life. In 1924, Congress passed a law excluding all Asian immigrants, including the Japanese, from becoming citizens. Historian Alice Yang. They also weren't allowed to own land in their own name. It's called the Alien Land Acts. Throughout the West Coast, the anti-Japanese forces argued that to try to prevent immigrants from settling in the U.S. and to make it clear that they were not welcome, you would not allow them to own land. A lot of Japanese immigrants got around this by putting the deeds to their property in the names of their children. Under the Constitution, children born in the U.S. are American citizens. The Alien Land Acts were just one of many barriers built by the whites to keep the Japanese separate and unequal. Historian Greg Robinson. In Los Angeles, for example, which is the largest Japanese-American community, Something like 80% of the city's real estate is off-limits to Asian Americans. There are laws that prevent Japanese Americans from marrying whites, and there are all sorts of social discriminations against Japanese Americans. There's not a single Japanese American public school teacher, for example, in California. Such was the atmosphere on America's Pacific coast in the months, weeks, and days leading up to Pearl Harbor.
World War II began in 1939. There was strong sentiment in the U.S. to stay out of the conflict. Still, American military and law enforcement officials planned for that possibility. They suspected that Japan might attack the U.S. They also suspected that many Japanese immigrants and their families would be loyal to Japan. So, FBI surveillance teams created lists of leaders in the Japanese community on the Pacific coast. Within hours of the attack at Pearl Harbor, the roundup of innocent Japanese aliens began. Ray Takakawa's family owned a strawberry farm in Bellevue, Washington. Ray's mom was a U.S. citizen. Her dad was not. Ray was 14 at that time. And my dad was working outside. He was covering up this Japanese plant. It's called Udo. I remember that. And I went running out to tell him. He wasn't overly surprised. The surprise came later that night. Ray woke up to the sounds of a commotion. FBI agents were in the living room. My mother went on a rampage. I mean, she didn't care if they were FBI men or not. And she was proclaiming to them that she was an American citizen and she had the rights of an American citizen and how dare they come breaking into my house. And Oh, yes, I, I heard her. But that didn't matter to them. The FBI took her father away. We kept thinking he was coming home any day, you know. Oh, they couldn't keep him. We just assumed that he would be home any time now. Well, the days stretched into weeks. And the weeks became months. In Seattle's Japantown, a six-year-old girl named Mei Sasaki lived in an apartment above her family's grocery store. Both of Mei's parents were Japanese nationals, after December 7th, the FBI suddenly came for her father. There were these two big guys that came and were talking to my dad about this. And then my mother told me, she whispered in my ear in Japanese, to run over there and grab hold of Papa and start crying. And then she told my two brothers to go there and just look very sad. May's father was prominent in the local Kenjinkai. It was a mutual aid association made up of local Japanese people who helped each other out in times of misfortune. It was also a kind of social club. So the people that were rounded up right after the attack on Pearl Harbor were mostly immigrant leaders of the Japanese-American community. Historian Alice Yang says the FBI used a wide net to arrest Japanese nationals and ransack Japanese homes. Some of these people were prosperous businessmen. Um, some of them were wealthy farmers. Some of them were the heads of the Japanese Association, which was an immigrant community organization. Some were the heads of cultural organizations. So if you were the head of a Japanese poetry organization, that activity could cause you to be put on the surveillance list and therefore rounded up by the FBI. Back at six-year-old Mei Nakamura's place, FBI agents questioned her father. I ran over there and I grabbed all of his pant legs. I started crying and hollering, you know. And then my brothers were there holding on to Papa. And my dad was startled, you know. 
But then he saw the effect it had on the FBI agents. They kind of looked, you know, and everything. So finally, they left. The plan worked. The FBI left May's father alone. But Jean Akutsu's dad was not so lucky. The father, Kiyonosuke, was a first-generation immigrant who had a shoe repair shop in the heart of Seattle's Japantown. Jean Akutsu told his father's story to an oral history interviewer. On December 8th, my dad went to work as usual down there uh, mm -hmm. at his shoe repair mm -hmm. shop. And uh, about noontime, my mother got a phone call telling her to co close up the shop because uh, they're going to take my father in to uh, talk to him a little bit. So they'll be mm -hmm. detaining him over at the immigration office for mm -hmm. a few days. It would be more than a few days. Without filing any charges, the FBI took Kiyonosuke Akutsu into custody. We didn't know why he would be taken in, that all he was was a, a cobbler, and that was all he did. But the father also belonged to a local association that acted as a kind of bridge between the Japanese community and white society. The government sent him to a specially built prison camp for suspected hostile aliens. It was 500 miles away in Missoula, Montana. Went to see him and bid him goodbye. We didn't know when we'll see him again, but um, that was the last to see of him until uh, another close to two years down the line. Frank Fuji was a Seattle teenager at the time of the war. His family owned a popular tavern. Well, Dad, when I every Sunday as a ritual, you know, I work with him at the tavern to clean it up and mop the floor or mop the bar, and then he lets me play the pinball machine, and it was a ritual of companionship. On Sunday, December 7th, there was a knock at the Fuji family's door. One hour after Pearl Harbor, I was very, you know, this innocent kid that opens the door, and this is one hour after Pearl Harbor now, and here uh, two big white gentlemen will say, we're the FBI. Uh, Where's Mr. Jimmy Rice of Kufuji? And I said, oh, Dad's here somewhere, and I uh, get him, and, and then they took him. And I thought, I didn't see him after that for three and a half years, and to me, that was devastating. Lawson Sakai was 18 years old when his uncle was picked up by the FBI. They were living in farm country near Los Angeles. Lawson remembers the panic that spread through the Japanese community as the FBI searched people's homes, looking for evidence that they were sympathetic to Japan. So a lot of the people that they found out that the FBI was going into their homes, they started burning and destroying everything. My parents destroyed everything they had, that, any relation to Japan. So there's no photos, no record of where they came from. It's all gone. Lawson's parents were hardly alone. Thousands of Japanese immigrants from Los Angeles to Seattle did the same thing. I remember the light of the afternoon and everything. This is Pat Suzuki. She grew up on a farm in central California and was 12 years old when the FBI raids started. It was getting dark, and my mother had a little fire that she had going, and she was tearing up family pictures uh, of people in Japan and her younger brother, just anything that might have implicated our connection with Japan. It was pure terror. 17-year-old Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga 
lived with her family in Los Angeles. My father destroyed all of his Japanese language books because rumors spread that if the FBI came to your home and found Japanese language books, your father or uncle who were mother would be taken away. And fear just gripped the community over things like that. The Japanese detained by the FBI was shipped to prison camps in Montana, North Dakota, New Mexico, and Texas. They were detained with German and Italian nationals, swept up mostly on the East Coast and in the Midwest. They were never charged and had no access to lawyers. Law professor Eric Moller says it was perfectly legal. Because the, the law since the late 18th century has permitted the arrest and detention of so-called enemy aliens. That is to say, citizens of countries with whom the United States is in a declared war. So there were efforts made by both the Office of Naval Intelligence and also the FBI to kind of surveil the Japanese communities of the West Coast and develop lists of individuals who might cause trouble in the event of a war. Some of the Japanese aliens would be reunited with their families during the mass incarceration to come. Others would be gone for years. And it bears repeating, historians have yet to find evidence of a single conviction of a Japanese-American accused of sabotage or espionage in World War II. In the FBI roundup, the loss of so many heads of households put a great strain on the wives and the eldest sons left behind. Soon enough, they would become targets too. Pressure was growing from the white nativists and commercial groups on the Pacific coast to clear out all of the 110,000 Japanese Americans living in the region. In our next chapter, two weeks from now, Matsue Watanabe is forced to leave home. It was a very scary experience for us, not knowing if and when we would be back and where we were going. We didn't know where we were going. You've been listening to Order 9066. Please help us spread the word about the series by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saab Shimono. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Soraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Anna Murayama, and Emerald O'Brien. This podcast is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanefuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese-American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese-Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Densho. You can see photos from the incarceration period. 
and find links to additional resources at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can upload photos of any objects you may have that are linked to the incarceration. You can see a gallery of what others have contributed. And you can also find a link to the Smithsonian Online Exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.